Well, if you don't know me, uh, if you're new perhaps, my name is Josh. I am the pastor for children and youth here at Hamilton Baptist Church. And and we are going to be looking at Proverbs chapter 5 today. You know we've been uh, going through Proverbs. Uh, it's been a little slower as we've had a couple of breaks with um, Pastor Stephen um, stepping aside for some men that are, have been with us for a short time this summer to preach with Jeff Hemby and Corey Shepard. And I trust we've all been blessed by that. But I will continue with our series in Proverbs. And we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 5. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 530. And if you don't have a, have a Bible, I would encourage you to take these Pew Bibles. Um, take it home, read God's Word. Uh, perhaps even go back over Proverbs 5 today or tomorrow. And also, as a reminder, Pastor Stephen has encouraged us as a church to read through Proverbs this summer. That it wouldn't just be something we come to on a Sunday as we hear God's Word preached, but it would be something that we're thinking about daily. Perhaps even you may read uh, Proverbs 1 on the first day of the month and then just proceed as you go each day reading the corresponding chapter with the day of the month. And so we turn our attentions to Proverbs chapter 5. And uh, I know that John prayed for me specifically and this message that he, I think he said, I chose. Uh, Let me kind of rephrase that is Pastor Stephen and I sat in his office. We read through Proverbs. Uh, We came up with some themes in Proverbs. And so we named some of the major themes in Proverbs. He told me, all right, Josh, you've got first choice, or at least the way I remember it is he said, Josh, you've got first choice. So I took uh, teaching on parents and children, which will come the Sunday after Vacation Bible School. And then my recollection serves as he says, all right, you chose first, I choose last, and you get Proverbs chapter 5. Um, so it's, this is a very difficult chapter. Can perhaps even be unsettling, um, can be very tender for some of us. In this, in this church. And so as we come to it, I want you to receive this as from God, not from me trying to pick at a sore spot in someone's life. And the reason why we decided to preach on this is because it's a major theme in the book of Proverbs. All of chapter 5, half of chapter 6, all of chapter 7, and then a number of Proverbs after that talk about temptation and lust, marital relations and adultery. And so we do tackle a very tough subject. But the first reason is because God's word addresses this. The second reason is because it needs to be discussed here in the church, in our homes. And hopefully this is, if you haven't had these conversations yet in your home, hopefully this can be kind of a launching pad for discussion in the homes, in your home, with your spouse, with your children, even with your children that have moved out. Because as we look at this in the context is the father speaking to his son, and it's not a 10, 11, 12-year-old son. He's speaking to his son who's married. And so even for fathers who have children or mothers who have children who have left the home, whether they've graduated high school or college or even if they're married and, have grand, and you've got grandkids, this is a father addressing his son who's married. 
And so I don't think this is a, a topic that's only reserved for parents with kids in the home. But I think it opens it up to us discussing this with our own sons and daughters, no matter how old they are. And in a similar way, you don't tell your son or your daughter the first time, or you don't just tell them the first time they leave the house to drive safely. Even when they come home at 45 with the grandkids who may be 10, you tell them, go home safely. Right? You look out for their safety because you care for them. You love them. And so this is even a time where a father is telling his son, I know you're married already. But I want you to hear this. I want you to be warned of the seduction of seeking relations outside of marriage. And it shouldn't stop today. It should be carried on. And so also before we dive into Ephesians or in, into Proverbs, I want us to I want to say a, a word to those who have been affected by adultery. And perhaps that's all of us even. You may be the one who's committed adultery. You may be the one who's been offended. You may have grown up in a home that was split because of infidelity in the home. And so this is something that affects many, many people. And so it's worthy of our considering today. And I also want to, to even say, perhaps a, just as an encouragement as one of your pastors, is that perhaps this is something that's happened in your past. And it's like, oh great, here it comes. We get to dredge this back up again. But I hope that you hear today, this is not just going to be a list of rules of do's and don'ts so you can be a, a, a good Christian. But I hope this is, can in, in many ways be a, a balm to your spirit, an encouragement to you if this has been in your past, where we can see that God is a God who forgives. God is a God who loves. He did not leave us in our sin to get through life without help, without a Savior. He saw us in our sin and in Himself in Christ came to save us from our sin. And so I want you to know that this is not easy. My mom's here, it's not easy. This is a subject that no one really wants to or looks forward to addressing. And so I hope that today is an encouragement even to those who are not married, those who look forward to marriage. Receive this as God's wisdom to you when you pursue marriage. And so it's good for us to consider His Word. It's life-giving when we see this. When we see the Father's care, it, it gives life to us. And so I pray that as we look at Proverbs 5 today, you don't see a heavy-handed God coming down saying, obey these rules or I'll smite you. I hope you see it with the tender loving care through this Father's words to His Son and that it would increase our affections for God that would stir in us a love to obey Him as we come to it today. And so even as we read in just a second, I'd like you to uh, take from this four things from Proverbs. The first is that we should listen to God's good wisdom. The second is do not be deceived by the forbidden woman. The third thing is that we would be captured by our spouse's love. 
And then the final thing is that we would see that isolation breeds sin. And so would you read with me now in Proverbs chapter 5? My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan, and when your flesh and body are consumed, and you say, How I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers, or incline my heart to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, by a forbidden woman? And embrace the bosom of an adulteress. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in his cords of sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. And so I want us to see... How the writer here tells us to listen to God's good wisdom, right? He says, my son, be attentive to wisdom. Incline your ear to understanding. And he's not just saying this because he's he's a pompous father who wants to have the ear of his, his son. He says it because proper behavior depends upon the conditions of these first two verses. They depend on the condition of your heart. He says, depend on wisdom understanding, discretion, and knowledge. These are all things of the heart. And especially discretion, that you would know what's right and wrong, right? You can be pretty smart, book smart, and have a lot of head knowledge. But the one who's truly wise knows and can see right from wrong. And without wisdom, we won't see through the facade of sin. And even here in in these first few verses, the lips of the father, they're contrasted with the honeyed lips of the adulteress, of the forbidden woman. She seeks to seduce. And it's not just contrasted, but it's even telling us that the lips of the father, they're a protection against the lips of this honeyed-lipped forbidden woman. And so also we see the father is not too humble here, right? He says, 
Be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. And I think maybe a good way to to even picture this is if there's a fire out in the lobby, you don't want somebody coming in and saying, hey guys, there's, I think there's a fire outside in the lobby. You want them to come in and say, hey, be warned, there's a fire. The exits are this way, get out. You don't want somebody coming in sheepishly saying, there's fire, beware. And so I think it's very similar with the father to the son saying, this is dangerous. Hear my words, incline your ear to my wisdom that you might be warned and spared from heartache and sin. And I think if we're even reading this correctly, we even see that this is God's wisdom to us. It's not just a father speaking to a son who who learns something bad, but it's even our good father's good wisdom to us to spare us, to save us. And so as the father speaks to his son in this passage, I think we should even see this as God's good avenue or the father is the conduit to wisdom to his son. And so kids, in here, hear this, but then even see your own parents as they speak God's word to you as God's avenue for wisdom into your life that you might hear God's good wisdom, that it's meant for your good. And even as parents, the goal is not that we could raise moral children, right? We're not reading Proverbs just to get good manners. That's moralism. We're not telling our kids, or we shouldn't be telling our kids, don't do these things over here and, and make sure you do these things because I want you to be good, upstanding citizens Our goal of raising kids is not to have moral, responsible kids. Our goal in raising kids is that we might point them to the true God who loves far greater than anyone could imagine, and that they would love Him and they would obey Him. And even as this practical wisdom, this practical living is given, it's not just a father beating his son down with do's and don'ts. But it's give me your ear because I care for you. Give me your ear because I love you. I want what's best for you. And so this really sets the foundation of this whole passage is that the father is telling the son, I want you to hear this because it's for your own good that I tell you these things. And so I want us to receive this as God's good wisdom to us. And then in verses 3 through 14, I think what we need to remember is that we should not be deceived by the forbidden woman. So in verses 1 and 2, we see to receive God's good wisdom, but now we see that we should not be deceived by the forbidden woman. And why? Because sin masquerades as honey, it looks appetizing, it looks appealing. Right? We look at honey and even your mouth may even water because it's enticing. It may even provide temporary satisfaction when we give in to sin. And then it breeds a craving for more with that excitement. But it also leaves us in dissatisfaction because it doesn't quench a forever thirst once we partake of it. We want it again. And then again, 
And what's the author say here? He says it actually leads to death. So he's saying, don't be deceived by what it looks like at first glance. But he's saying, see the end of it. When you look at the end of something, you see what it is for what it truly is. And so the father's even saying, don't be deceived by what it first looks like, but look to the end. See what its end is. It's like bitter wormwood. So sexual sin, it masquerades as as honey. But what it truly is, is death. Leading to death. To bitterness. And so I think even it's good for us to remember that sexual sin, it doesn't come with flashing warning lights, red lights that blink and get your attention. Right? Honey doesn't, doesn't yell out and say, don't eat me. It calls out wanting you to partake of it. And sexual sin, it looks appealing. It can be enticing. And so these emotional feelings, these, this emotional, perhaps love may be a way some people describe it, it has a way of making fools of us. In our right mind, we would look at it and say, why in the world would I trade my spouse, the one I've given my love to, why would I trade that for some momentary, fleeting, emotional feelings? But it doesn't come to us like that. It comes to us deceiving us, making us think the grass is greener on the other side, that we might be enticed by it. But I think it's also good for us to see that that sexual sin is not always just, it's not merely physical. Sin is always a heart issue. Listen to this from Matthew chapter 5. It says, Jesus speaking, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so all sin including sexual sin, it's a heart issue. So we have to look at the heart. And I think even a, a good illustration of this is, if you guys have read the Chronicles of Narnia with the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis, in one of the chapters, he talks about Turkish delight, right? Edmund, one of the Pavenzi children, and the White Witch, Lewis writes this, The queen let another drop fall from her bottle onto the snow, and instantly there appeared a round box tied with green silk ribbon, which when opened turned out to be out to contain several pounds of the best Turkish delight. Each piece was sweet and light to the very center, and Edmund had never tasted anything more delicious. At first, Edmund tried to remember that it is rude to speak with his mouth full, but soon he forgot about this and thought only of trying to shovel down as much Turkish delight as he could. And the more he ate, the more he wanted. At last, the Turkish delight was all finished, and Edmund was looking very hard at the empty box and wishing that he would have asked, that she would ask whether he wanted to, some more. Probably the queen knew quite well what he was thinking, for she knew, though Edmund did not, that this was enchanted Turkish delight. And that anyone who once tasted it would want more and more of it. And would even, if they were allowed, go on eating till they killed themselves. 
And then the white queen continues on to tempt Edmund, telling him that there are rooms full of Turkish delight. Even after finding out the witch's nature, it was the candy that drove Edmund on, Lewis writes. When Edmund heard that the lady he had made friends with was a dangerous witch, he felt even more uncomfortable. But he still wanted to taste the Turkish delight again more than he had wanted anything else. He had eaten his share of the dinner, but he had really enjoyed it. He hadn't really enjoyed it because he was thinking all the time about Turkish delight. And there's nothing that spoils the taste of good, ordinary food half so much as the memory of bad magic food. And I think that describes well the enticement that sexual sin portrays for us. It looks good. It may even feel good at first. But it leads to death. Even if, if, it's, if, it, if it goes unchecked, it will cost you so much. And even the good things, right? It says the ordinary food, the, the nourishing food is dinner. Edmund's dinner, he couldn't even enjoy that that was really good for him because all he kept thinking about was the bad magic Turkish delight. And so even those of us who are married, sometimes it may be difficult to enjoy our spouse what's meant to nourish us because we are trapped by the honeyed lips of a forbidden woman or man. And so sexual sin is not just physical but it also, it destroys our conscience, it hardens one's heart, and it destroys our soul. And statistics show that, and I, statistics vary widely. I've seen some that were low or looked low, and then some that, that seemed even really high. So I just kind of picked the median, what I thought was kind of the, the middle. And some of the statistics I, I saw said that 35% of married men and 30% of married women engage in, a, in adultery in some form while being married. And that's staggering. There's even websites that give themselves to trying to make it easy, no strings attached to marital unfaithfulness. And just last year, some computer hackers broke into one of these websites and got names and display these names on the internet. And families were destroyed. Jobs lost. Reputations done away with in a moment's notice. Just like that. It can cost you. Even when you think there's nothing that's going to harm me, nobody's going to find out. You have no idea the ramifications on your soul or on your family. And so I want you here to, to hear this now is, is not just don't do these things, but I want you to hear God saying to us through his word, be warned, this is way more costly than you could have ever imagined. It can harm you in ways that you might not ever even think of. And sin does have grave consequences. Even if looking at our passage, adultery will hurt you in verse 4. Adultery will cause you to lose your way in life, verse 6. 
It will numb you to God. And when you disobey God in, in, our, in, in our hearts, it will harden us, especially with sexual sin. Adultery leads to death, verse 5. Adultery will cost you your wealth, verse 10. Adultery will cost you your honor and reputation, verse 9. Adultery destroys your soul. Here, verse 14, it says, I'm at the brink of utter ruin and the assembled congregation. It can cost you. Not just momentary things. It can cost you your family. It can cost you money. It can cost you your soul. And so even Solomon's warning here in verse 8, when he says, keep your way far from her and do not let... And, and do not go near the door of her house. He's saying, don't even dabble in sin, right? When you're on the internet and you're reading the article, don't even look at the clickbait articles at the bottom that try to get you to click on it and to go to other sites. Don't flirt with temptation in the office. Stay away from it. Don't linger too long in the coworker's office. It can trap you. It can deceive you. And even we, we sometimes try to justify it when, we, when we're walking around or we're using the, the, the computer and we say, well, it's, it's not pornographic. Or it was just one look. It wasn't a second look. It was just a long first look, right? You've heard that one before, especially from like youth guys. Oh, well, I didn't look twice. It was just a long one, Pastor Josh. But are we not flirting with temptation? And when we flirt with it, just think about it. It, It's not just a, a simple harmless act, but we're flirting with temptation in times like that because our heart's desiring it. Right? You don't click on the article because you're like, oh, I don't really want to read that. You look at things because you're enticed by them. And so it's difficult. And so even in those times, it's like, I just want, I want just a little satisfaction with not going all the way and feeling the consequences of sin, right? I'm just going to dabble just a little bit. And before you know it, it leads to destruction. It takes you places you never thought it would. And so even as we're thinking about this, I I even want to encourage you that this isn't just a thing that guys struggle with. Yes, it's a father speaking to a son, but I think if we're honest, sexual sin is something that all people deal with. Generally, it it may look different for men than it does for women, but I think all people struggle with sexual sin in some way. And so even if it's, you're looking at Facebook and you're thinking in the back of your mind, there's an old high school boyfriend, a girlfriend, or an old fling from the past. I just want to check in and see what's going on in their life. And then that leads to a little flirtation with just looking at something that may be harmless, but then also thinking about what might this life look like if I were that, with that person now. And it's dangerous. We have to beware. But I also want us to see how the Father speaks to the Son. 
He doesn't just throw out things at his son like, hey, be warned because you might conceive a child out of wedlock. There are warnings and there are harsh warnings, right? But that's not, I don't think that's the thrust of this passage. I think the primary warning is not that loose living invites disease or pregnancy out of wedlock. It's that, that sexual sin, adultery, it dissipates irrevocably the powers a person has been given to invest. He will wake up to find that he's been exploited by his chosen circle with whom he really had no ties. He's condemned by his own conscience and on the brink of, of public ruin. So there's these warnings. And so we've seen that we should listen to God's good wisdom. We should not be deceived by this forbidden woman. But then in verses 15 through 20, I want us to see that we should be captured by our spouse's love. And this is where, if it hasn't already been uh, erotic enough, um, it definitely turns erotic. Uh, this is, in very many ways, poetry referring to some very real things that uh, happen within a marital relationship. And yes, I'm trying to be a little bit sensitive, but also get the point across, kind of like Disney does sometimes in their jokes. Um, so when it talks about, and actually reading this with my kids last night, I left out a couple of words, um, but we still did talk about it in generalities. But... We have to see that we should be captured by our spouse's love, right? There's the, the father's presenting two paths before his son. There's one that leads to Sheol, that is the way of the forbidden woman. And then there's this path of life that leads to great joy and springs of water with your wife. And sex, it, it can also be thought of as, as like a fire. In a fireplace, it provides great warmth and comfort and does a lot of good. But if it's out of the fireplace, it can burn a whole house down. And so I think the writer here would even say, keep, keep the fire in the fireplace. Don't let the flame go out. And in fact, stoke that fire as much as possible that it, the flame might be as hot as possible. Yeah, I like that. Amen. You can amen that for sure. I don't know who that was, but I'm, I'm in agreement with that. So keep it in the fireplace. And the father's not just beating his son over the head with don'ts, but he's, he's giving his son a, a, a good context for marital relations. And so that's even a warning, I think, for those of you who aren't married, is let your body be reserved for your spouse. And you might even say, well, Josh, that's like super old school. That's like, I don't know, 1950. But it's God's wisdom to us, so let us receive it. Let us hear it for what it is. And God's not saying Man, men and women don't enjoy physical relations with your spouse. In fact, God's created us as sexual beings. So he's saying, with your spouse, enjoy it. 
When's the last time you heard that in church? Enjoy marital relations with your spouse. Right? Verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Verse 18. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. I love that. At all times and always. It's like not every now and then, always. At all times. And it's not just men, I think, that should desire this. I think it should be both spouses, men and women, that want to lay themselves bare before one another without inhibitions and saying, this is me giving all of myself to you. Would you take me? Would you receive all that I am? This is me in my most vulnerable state before you. You can see everything about me. It's beautiful. Your spouse, as one pastor would say, your spouse is your divinely approved sexual wellspring of joy. It is meant for your good. And God gives these boundaries not to cramp sexual desire, not to cramp sexual pleasure, but to make it grow. Because if you know I can give myself to this person, and no matter what happens, I can know that I'll be with them forever, that brings great security. When in your marriage you can know you don't have to fear being left. You don't have to fear being given up. And so I think even this is a way to renew marriage vows. And I think if, if we see this as the father telling the son to be intoxicated, right? He says, be intoxicated, or you might even say be inebriated by the love of your wife. It gives us a good picture of what this should look like. And I think even we can glorify God, even as, as John read from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that our bodies are not our own. They should be used in all ways, including in marital relations, to glorify God because He's bought us at a price. And so I think in this passage we can see even that sexual relations between a husband and wife, that it's a gift from God. That it's also to be enjoyed and that sexual relations between a husband and a wife, they're meant to increase delight in one another. And I think also if we view these rightly, if, it's, if, if my relations with my wife are helping increase my love for her and my devotion to her, is that not also an evangelistic picture to the world of how I love my wife and I'm willing to sacrifice all of myself and serve her, give myself up for her? And so if I'm enjoying my wife, I'm loving her more. And, and right now I'm not even talking just sexually, but I'm just talking in relationship with her. If I'm loving her more, is that not a beautiful apologetic to Christ's love for his bride, that is the church, for the world to see? I think it is. And so if, if physical relations with my wife and you with your spouse 
increase your love for one another? Is that not a good thing that can glorify and honor God? But then also, I think we should see this as it's good to have defense in life, but it's even better to have a good offense, right? You hear that in relation to sports. It's, you want a good defense, but you also need a good offense. And you don't play sports just to have fun, or at least not in my house. You play to win. And it's more fun when you win. So the logic is, I play for fun, but that means I play to win, because winning is more fun than losing. And if that's the case, then, yeah, on the baseball field, when the players are out on the field, you may hear the coach yell, hey, focus, get game ready, which means get in your stance, be focused to get that ball when you're playing defense. But you can't win a baseball game unless you actually score some runs too, no matter how good your defense is. So I think even in the marriage, it's great to have a good defense. Awesome, good. Set up some boundaries for internet viewing or movie watching. Have good internet filters. Covenant eyes is a great thing. It provides accountability. It's scalable for filtering or not filtering and just reporting. That's awesome. But you also need a good offense. So practice your offense, right? Practice it often. Enjoy offense, right? Phil Jackson, one of the best coaches in basketball, he's known for the triangle offense. He was great. They won games. They won championships because they, more, they scored more points than the other team. So husbands and wives... Practice your offense and practice it often. I think that's one of those Disney points. Hopefully you get it. (laughs) It's okay to laugh. So we've seen that we should listen to God's good wisdom, that we shouldn't be deceived by the forbidden woman, that we should be captured by our spouse's love. But then also I think we need to see in the the remaining verses in this, this chapter, 21 through 23, is that isolation breeds sin. So the adulterer will be caught up in his sin. In verse 22, we see that. But the father doesn't just say, these are the bad things that will happen if you dabble in sin. These are the great things that will happen if you have a really good offense and you're, you're captured by your wife's love. But he also turns his son's eye to our heavenly father. Right? Look at verse 21. For man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. Then also in Psalm 33, verses 13 through 15, it says, The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. So the father is turning his son's eyes to the Lord. And he's saying, also if we remember verses 1 and 2 and verse 7, don't isolate yourself. Remember, there's, there's somebody seeing you. There's somebody that sees your heart. Even at the very beginnings of temptation and lust, there is one, our Heavenly Father, who sees all and knows all. And so this chapter is very much talking about physical adultery, but I think we also, we can't neglect the powerful and devastating consequences 
of emotional adultery as well. Perhaps it hasn't gotten to the point that it led to physical adultery, but there's also a very real emotional adultery that can lead to to hard hearts towards your spouse. And so I even want to warn us today that there is, there's more than just the physical. I think it starts with the emotional. Perhaps that's where it always starts, is with an emotional attachment. Oh, I feel like I'm not getting this from my spouse, but man, look at this. I don't know that I've ever heard of a case where it it didn't first begin with an emotional attachment that led to a physical expression of that. And so I want to warn us that we should flee all temptation, physical but also emotional, that we be on guard, right? We don't have, we don't walk around with goggles or glasses that that flash red or yellow or green at the things we shouldn't look at, the things we should look at. And there's not the in-between yellow that says, hey, caution, warning, you're getting close to things you shouldn't look at. If that were the case, then I think even in our sin, we would try to figure out, well, well, what's the software behind driving what tells me green, yellow, and red? We try to get in the back end and, and even perhaps uh, change the, the equations that make things we shouldn't look at flash up red or the things that we should be cautioned about as yellow. I think even in our sinfulness, we try to rationalize. We try to justify. And so it's not just a don't do and do. It's very much a heart issue. One pastor even says this, the greatest infidelity and sexual unfaithfulness is unfaithfulness to God. And so we're not just merely looking at when we talk about marital faithfulness. We're not just talking about an expression of my devotion to my wife or you to your husband, although it is that. But most fundamentally, it's a, it's a betrayal or an unfaithfulness to our God who's given us the great gift of marriage, of oneness with our spouses. And so I want us to see that unfaithfulness is the same as cheating on God or running off in the night to worship the idol of sexual pleasure than worshiping the one true God. And so you worship your way into sin by valuing something that's been created and given to people above worshiping the one true God, loving Him above all things. And so you have only one hope. And that's that you would be rescued by God. Because I think if I understand the human heart right and even what the scriptures say about us is that all people are sexual sinners. There's not one person in here that's not free from having ever committed sexual sin. And so you need to see that that sin has separated you from a good and loving God and your only hope is running to that same God that you've rebelled against in your sin. So we have to worship 
our way out of sin by looking to him, looking to the king who gave his life for you even when he saw you in the throes of your sin. And so many times this is hard, right? Just because I'm, I'm up here preaching God's word to you about it doesn't mean that, that you can conquer it in five steps. But it's something you have to battle. You don't dabble with sin. You don't get close to sin. We have to ask that God would give us a hatred for sin. Because even if we look to, to Romans chapter 1 and, and we see that we allow sexual pleasure to become a functional savior where we worship the created over the creator, then we're giving ourselves over to sin. And so I want to, I, I pray that all of us today here, that we repent of sin. That we repent of any emotional attachments that we may have to others that we cry out for forgiveness to our Savior who gave his life for us. And I think when we see Jesus as our great treasure and our, our, our satisfaction, then, then we will want marital faithfulness because we will see that, that sexual pleasure is not promised in someone else other than our spouse. And when we treasure him more than anything else, even more than sexual bliss, then we'll worship him above sex. And so I hope that as we conclude that, that this would be a time that we long to taste the goodness of God that he's given to us and himself, but also that we would want to see the beauty of his ways fleshed out in our lives as we devote ourselves to our spouses and we look to him and again, we can't worship, or we, sorry, we worshiped our way into sin. And so we must worship our way out of sin by worshiping the greatest treasure that we could ever have. So I'd like to pray for us in that way. Father, I thank you that you have, you have given to us the good gift of marriage, of, of pleasure, that you have designed to be provided to us in marriage and that it would be something that we seek to we seek to fulfill through your wisdom your wisdom for sex and i know that even in our culture this is something that continues to grow sexual temptation is before our eyes even when we try to avoid it it seems almost impossible at times to, to escape it. And so I pray that you would help us to have a good defense, to put up boundaries in our life or things in our life that help us avoid it. But I pray that, that we would love you above all things, that we would even see that those sexual desires, if you're not married, that those are given to us to even help us pursue marriage. They shouldn't be squashed or squandered, but that they would drive us towards a spouse in marriage. And for those of us who are married, would you help us 
Would you help us to be captivated by the love of our spouse and the affection of our spouse and know that our spouse is not our Savior, but that we would know that you alone can save and you alone can rescue from sexual sin. And that we would seek you for all things, that we would seek you for goodness, that we would seek you for deliverance of sin. We thank you for your unending love and your faithfulness. Would you help us to be a people who are faithful and display your character in all that we do? It's in Christ's name I pray, amen.